To kick it off this morning is Professor Roger Trigg. He's Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of Warwick and a Senior Research Fellow in the Faculty of Theology and a member of the Faculty of Philosophy here at Oxford. He works on projects in the Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion, including a program on the cognitive science of religion and its theological and philosophical implications. He also writes on the topics of religious freedom and religion in the public sphere. He'll be speaking to us about religious toleration, religious freedom, and human nature. And the commenter will be Dr. John Perry of Oxford. Good. Well, thank you very much indeed. Yesterday, uh, we had a very interesting day hearing uh, about various scientific views of religion. And I suppose we might be forgiven for thinking that religion was entirely harmful. But at least a lot of that that came across was that it was entirely harmful. And I think, uh, obviously, if you look back over the history of human beings, uh, just about every terrible thing that could have been done has been done in the name of religion. But I would suggest also that probably just about every good thing that could have been done has also been done in the name of religion. So it's also a very, very patchy thing, partly because religion is universal and that actually there haven't been many people who've been operating entirely apart from religion. So the history of religion is partly the history of human beings. So when we look at yesterday at religion, obviously we're looking at a very disparate phenomenon. It's something that isn't actually easily defined. And the last session yesterday afternoon, uh, we had the point made that actually religion breaks down into things like rituals and other things. I'll be coming back to that. But it does suggest that uh, just talking about religion is far, far too facile. It may be that that means that the whole topic of this conference is uh, a, a bit ambitious. I'm afraid I'm going to myself slip into the trap of just talking about religion, uh, because in a way we all know what we mean, and it's, uh, to use a philosophical term, there are family resemblances here. Uh, one of the great traps is, of course, meaning by religion our religion and anything that's like it, or the religion we, we're most familiar with. Uh, obviously, there are many different facets of religion, uh, but uh, it doesn't come in one easy package. Uh, and I think that it's very easy just to talk about religion in a way that suggests that you can either uphold it or dismiss it as if it isn't it and it isn't like that. Um, you can see this in, in the political world that very often people make remarks about religion and actually they're talking about radical Islam and they don't say so because that looks very racist. Uh, but quite clearly there are lots of different <coughs> facets at work here. Now, uh, the whole attitude about religion, and whether in fact we're in favour of it or, or against it, uh, whatever it is, um, is something that's pretty deeply rooted and has been with us since the 18th century at least. Uh, when I was an undergraduate in Oxford, uh, I saw John Locke very much as a British empiricist philosopher, the first of the three great empiricists, Locke, Berkeley, Hume, very science-based. Um, that, of course, is true. Uh, but he was also a Christian philosopher, very much so. You can't understand a lot of his work unless you see how it's steeped in Christianity. He wrote a book called The Reasonableness of Christianity. So he wasn't the kind of empiricist that ruled out all reference to religion. Now Locke is a terribly important figure in this field. He was, the, in a sense, the patron saint of the glorious revolution in this country. He came over on the same boat as Queen Mary from, from Holland, having been in exile, and his whole writings about toleration, in a sense, were linked very much with the great act of toleration of 1689 in this country, 
which tolerated dissent much more than previously. And then a century later, uh, his views uh, meshed in very much with what was happening in the United States, so that people like Thomas Jefferson uh, followed Locke very explicitly. He thought that Locke was one of the three greatest men who'd ever lived. If you go to Monticello, um, Jefferson's home in Virginia, uh, you'll see a picture of three. He, he thought that it was uh, Bacon, Newton, Locke, and there's a portrait of Locke as one of his great trinity of, of great thinkers. So Jefferson himself was steeped in this kind of view. And it's interesting to see where Locke's coming from. Although, in a sense, uh, he's, uh, I suppose, himself part of the early Enlightenment, he was also echoing the views of people who'd been operating in Cambridge, uh, the Cambridge Platonists in the middle of the 17th century. And they were very much Christian theologians. They believed in reason. They were championing reason. But it wasn't a reason that was ruling out religion. It was a reason that had to operate within the ambit of religion. Indeed, their most favourite slogan, uh, which um, it was just summed up their views, is that reason is the candle of the Lord. And I would suggest that reason isn't a great searchlight, it's only a candle, but that it was based in a religious view of God. And that's a view that, that Locke himself had and uh, was, in fact, uh, picked up by him. That, that phrase, reason is the candle of the Lord, appears in Locke's writings once or twice. Um, and Locke, I mean, was very much uh, influenced by the Cambridge Platonists. He attended the church of one of them in London. Uh, he nearly married the daughter of another. So he was entwined with them in various ways. Now, you've got that, the early Enlightenment, a view of reason that isn't against religion, and that's contrasted, I think, very much with the view of the later Enlightenment, um, particularly after the French Revolution in France, where reason became a much more hard-edged, narrow thing that was very much more associated with a view of materialism, uh, which, in a sense, almost by definition, cut out a notion of religion. Now, this gave us a, a tension, I think, between two different views of reason. Both, in a sense, in the Enlightenment, you can say that the Cambridge Platonists were the early Enlightenment, they influenced the beginnings of modern science. They also influenced people like Newton and Boyle in Cambridge. So, so they were there, they were members of the Royal Society when it was founded, for instance. So they weren't anti-rational, but they had a subtly different view of reason from the later one. So one view rooted, rooted the whole idea of reason in a belief that all reason was ultimately grounded in God, maybe it had no foundation, no real um, ability to function without that. Um, on the other hand, uh, the different vision was that rationality was bound up with the fact of human autonomy, and at its extreme, the ability of humans, uh, particularly in the field of morality, to decide for themselves what was good or bad, it was to break from the stifling authority and tradition of the church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church. So there was a, a one view of reason as progressive, in, in inverted commas, of breaking with the past, another view of reason that saw it anchored uh, very much in a notion of God. And indeed, I, I think that, uh, just to digress for a moment, you can see that if you react against the latter view of reason uh, without a notion of reason as anchored in God, 
Um, you're liable to end up with postmodernism and relativism. So there is, uh, I think, a view that, uh, in fact, if you don't anchor reason somewhere, in the end you're going to get a reaction against the notion of reason and you're going to say, well, it is itself part of a tradition. It is itself something that hasn't got any ultimate justification. Well, that's one argument that could be put. Anyway, the different visions could easily also lead to opposite views concerning the role of religion in society. So while the first stresses the importance of human freedom and rationality, it sees it very much as linked with a religious belief and not opposed to it. It looks to religion not as its enemy but its support. And um, indeed, I suppose, even though the French Revolution did talk about the rights of men, it does, did begin to recognise them anyway under the auspices in the presence of the supreme being, but it became much more avowedly atheistic. But you can see these two views very much in, uh, I suppose, our society now. Uh, you can see it in the fight about the place of religion in public life. Is religion a threat? Is it opposed to reason? Or is reason possibly allied with it? Is religion a threat to democracy with its authority? Or does it underpin democracy, as de Tocqueville, who visited the United States in the early 19th century, firmly thought? He thought religion formed the character of the American people and democracy couldn't function without the stiffening that religion gave. Indeed, liberty itself depended on religion, he thought. And both strands of the Enlightenment have influenced later views of human freedom. And it's no exaggeration to say uh, that the presence of both views is in a sense there in the fights that you see between law and religion in the United States and increasingly in this country. And even the founders of the United States had different views. There isn't one view that you could say was present with the founders of the United States, though none of them were explicit atheists. But was religion a support for democracy or a possible enemy? By positing a separate source of authority from the state or the will of the people, was it a danger or an indispensable support in developing the character of a free people? Now, one recurring complaint in a lot of um, the American debates in the 18th century, uh, and I think it's relevant to what we're talking about here and now, is that actually toleration, which is the word we've been using so far, is actually not enough. Religious toleration, after all, I mean, it's the word used in the Great Act of Toleration of 1689, religious toleration assumes that you're allowing people to behave in ways you don't approve of and to believe things you don't think are true, but you will let them get on with it. You won't impose a view. But that suggests that there is a view that is the right view, a view that could be imposed. And in America, at any rate, uh, in the United States in the 1770s, 1780s, uh, people felt that didn't guarantee real religious freedom or real freedom. It suggested that there was already an, always a norm from which people could depart, but of course by departing they were being unconventional, failing to conform, they were, of course, and explicitly non-conformists, which suggests that there is a conformity here. 
Now, that became explicit in debates in 1776 in Virginia about a declaration of rights and about a new Virginia constitution. And I don't want to go into this too much, but it is interesting to see how people were explicitly drawing a distinction between toleration, which had been the law in Virginia, supposedly. I, don't, I think one of the problems about the way people reacted to the establishment of the Church of England in Virginia is the act of toleration had not been applied very consistently through the 18th century there. But that, that's another story. But when, in fact they came to draw up a Bill of Rights in Virginia. This is it's the Bill of Rights and Constitution of the Commonwealth of Virginia, agreed on June the 29th, 1776. Um, George Mason, one of the uh, founders, had originally wanted to codify principles of tolerance. In other words, he tried to codify what should have been the law in Virginia. And he wanted to in fact, uh, in a sense, codify what was the practice in England with an established church. And there were great arguments still in Virginia there about how far the Anglican church should still be recognised. But James Madison, who is, of course, a future president of the United States, very influential in drawing up the Constitution of the United States, intervened in the debate in Williamsburg, and he revised the article, and he demanded an equal entitlement for all citizens to the free exercise of religion. Now, note that phrase, because, of course, that is the phrase in the current Constitution of the United States. Uh, so the step from toleration to free exercise was made in Virginia, and, of course, a lot of the Bill of Rights of Virginia was then rewritten into the Constitution of the United States because so many of the influential figures in the early years came from Virginia. Uh, there, we, we landed up with the notion of free exercise, and that phrase was, in fact, uh, put there instead of the phrase fullest toleration of faith. So as we talk of, of toleration uh, and the question of, of toleration of, of religion, I think one perhaps should reflect that maybe toleration is not enough. Now, of course, it all depends where you're standing to tolerate. I mean, there are different places. You could be standing from the position of a, an established church that wants its way, of an authoritarian Catholic church that doesn't want any dissent. You could also be standing in a position of uh, extreme secularism, of a belief that religion is very harmful, and that actually religion itself is something must, that can be tolerated only with great difficulty. Both uh, demanding a privilege for a certain position and not recognising uh, a full freedom uh, of religion. Deviations from the norm, whatever the norm might be at one particular place and time, would therefore be only allowed by the grace of those who hold authority. And that was not to treat all citizens equally, the argument went, and Madison's revision of the proposed Virginian Bill of Rights put the notion of equality to the forefront. Freedom alone was not sufficient. If it was just the gift of those who, as he said, could just as easily withdraw the gift as give it. <coughs> For Madison, freedom was far greater than toleration and the later Virginia Statute uh, for Religious Freedom, of which um, Thomas Jefferson was the author, made it clear that our civil rights should have no dependence on our religious opinions. And instead, the statute concludes the rights hereby asserted are the natural rights 
of mankind. Uh, that does, of course, raise the question of the status of natural rights and of human rights. Uh, again, I, I don't want to go into this too much this morning because it's too big a subject. I noticed yesterday at one point somebody suggested, uh, I think it was just a view that was being quoted, that human rights are opposed to religion. Now, I would query that uh, because one of the greatest of human rights, which is sometimes uh, forgotten, is actually itself freedom of religion and the freedom to manifest one's beliefs. And if one forgets that, one forgets one of the most basic of all human rights. And there is the question, which I think we all have to answer, why do humans matter anyway? Why human rights, not just animal rights even, why human rights so important? Um, for people like Jefferson, who wasn't an Orthodox Christian, um, nevertheless, there needed a theistic grounding for that. And uh, well, again, one question is, if once you remove the theistic grounding, can things remain the same, or does the foundation begin to shake? Unless you can put something very firm in its place, the question is, how far do we respect human rights? Because how far do we respect other people? who are humans. Um, the great war cry of the French Revolution, um, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, uh, again, in a sense, was a, a great war cry for human rights, apparently against the established authority, etc. But each of those words, I think, makes little sense outside a background of Christian theology. Freedom doesn't make much sense unless we have free will. We need a theological doctrine for that, I suppose. Um, that uh, equality doesn't make much sense as an ideal unless we think we're all equal in the sight of God. At least that's what the people originally putting it forward thought. And fraternity, well, brotherhood, well, that says it all, doesn't it? Because even if we want to include sisterhood, um, we're all, in a sense, the creators of the same God, the Father. Uh, without the notion of a father, what, the, what are brothers? So, uh, at any rate, you can see where the people are coming from with that slogan, whatever happened to the slogan thereafter. Anyway, uh, there are different facets of religion, and as I've said, it's very difficult sometimes to define them. Sometimes religion just seems whatever people think most important. Um, there was an old story of the football manager who said, no, religion, uh, uh, football is not my religion. It's much more important than that. Now, uh, that is, um, I think, humorous, because we actually expect religion to be the most important thing in people's lives. And uh, the, the idea that there's something more important uh, does raise questions. It also suggests that, as well, we don't find it that peculiar to think of somebody saying that football is his religion. And there are facets of football, which I, I, struck me yesterday, um, impinge on some of the parts of religion. I mean, if you think there are plenty of in-groups and out-groups in, in football, there are plenty of rituals, and so on and so on. There are parallels there. Um, so, uh, again, the idea of drawing hard and fast lines between what is religion and what isn't uh, becomes very difficult. Um, and religion isn't just the only source of conflict. Um, religion isn't usually the source of fights between football fans, unless you're in Glasgow. Uh, now, uh, religion, though, can be seen as a source of division and conflict, and therefore strenuous efforts can be made to control it. But the question is, 
therefore, how must the state relate to religious beliefs? Should it be neutral, or should it, in other words, uh, just stand back from everything, or should it even be actively opposed to religion uh, to try and control something it seems is very harmful? And today there are many debates you'll find almost every day there are issues coming up in the newspapers about people who uh, uh, go to court about various issues of freedom of religion and they find that in fact very often uh, the, the court's approach to them is from their point of view rather unsympathetic. So uh, I mean, not very long ago there was a programme on BBC One, Are Christians Being Persecuted? The very fact that the question could be seriously asked in this country um, says something. Uh, the word persecution is a very strong word there. Uh, but uh, there are controversies, and they're not altogether difficult, uh, they're altogether easy to resolve. Religious beliefs certainly go to the root of who we think we are, our identity. It's very difficult to think of the history of England, actually, and separate religion out of it. That's true of most countries, I suppose. Most of the symbols of our country have religious roots, the flag, the national anthem, etc. And uh, take that out, and of course people will begin to think whether they're religious or not, that things have changed rather radically. Um, they get this uh, problem in the United States and uh, the Supreme Court is wrestling with this at the moment and therefore they, they then get into the situation, they did this a couple of weeks ago, uh, that there's a cross that's uh, in fact uh, in California, uh, it looks as it, it's there as a so-called national memorial. Uh, the question is, does that imply endorsement of religion by Congress? Uh, well, there are a lot of arguments about that, and the Supreme Court, in the end, uh, tried to say, well, the cross has a meaning that isn't altogether religious. And uh, that itself caused a certain frisson amongst some Christians. Uh, but removing these symbols, which have a civic purpose, because they're religious in root, uh, does seem to cause a lot of trouble even amongst people who aren't necessarily very religious. Well. What do we say, therefore, about freedom of religion? Why do, does religion matter? Why is it important? Uh, and I'm not uh, getting involved here in questions of truth or falsity. Um, and obviously, from what I've said before, I mean, even if one did, uh, not all religion would be true, not all religion perhaps could be false, because they're asserting different things. So one would have to look at each claim on its merits. But over the last three years here in um, Oxford, I've been co-directing uh, a project on the cognitive science of religion and looking at its philosophical implications, and we've had an empirical side looking at uh, empirical work. Some of you may be very familiar with this, and I don't want to go into it in great detail to draw morals from it. Uh, but basis, the basis of it is to say that really current research in the cognitive science of religion is uncovering the cognitive architecture of the human mind. And uh, it shows that religious impulses are bound up with normal human conceptual equipment. <coughs> Religion is built up out of mental processes, often working at a pre-conscious level. So therefore, um, I don't think it's too bold to say we are natural 
theists. Now, that doesn't justify theism. I'm not getting into that. But the theism is the starting point, not the ending point. Atheism is a, a more sophisticated position, just as theology is a more sophisticated position, reflecting on <coughs> the impulses that we start with. But the suggestion coming here, and it's a suggestion coming from uh, people who are atheists as well as religious, is that, in fact, um, atheism, whether true or false, isn't the default option. And, of course, this will explain why, looking at anthropology and prehistory, religion has been almost universal. Uh, I remember talking to Steve Mivan, he was uh, mentioned yesterday, um, and he's an atheist, uh, but uh, he was saying that whenever he conducts uh, any kind of dig or anything like that, He's sure whether there is in, uh, material evidence there or not that the people he's looking at uh, did have a religion. And as I said, he's an atheist, and so I, what I, I said to him, well, you're saying that therefore, like it or not, we're stuck with religion. And he said yes. Uh, and I think that uh, one has to face the fact that this is a basic part of human nature. Um, perhaps I can just run through a few examples of uh, the way that uh, cognitive science of religion is working. Uh, as I said, some of you are very familiar with this. Uh, one is our tendency to detect agency, what my colleague um, Justin Barrett has called HAD, the hypersensitive detection device. Um, very briefly, I mean, if you're walking through a wood and there's a rustle of leaves, you would naturally think, who's that? What's that? If there's a bump upstairs in the middle of the night, you think, was there. Uh, the tendency, the natural tendency, the easy tendency, is to think that there's agency at work. Indeed, you can think from an evolutionary point of view, that's obvious common sense, that uh, if you're walking through a wood and you're unconcerned about odd noises, uh, you might get eaten very quickly. If you're aware of possible predators, even if they aren't there, it's better, in fact, to be alert when you don't need to be than not to be alert when you are. So there are good reasons why that will have been built in. So we are inclined to see agency. And if we don't see material agency, we find it very easy to see immaterial agency. And so this is just one building block in a view of religion. It's why perhaps people think of spirits and trees and more other earlier religions, uh, they see movement, they think there must be an agent behind it. That's a very traditional view of polytheistic religion, that movement and change uh, is always the subject of agency. Um, the thunder is the work of Zeus, it isn't just happening, somebody's doing it. Now, uh, that is rooted perhaps in a very natural way that humans think. Another uh, thing that cognitive science of religion is, is alleging is that religious concepts are minimally counterintuitive. In other words, uh, they, in fact, uh, latch onto our consciousness very easily uh, just because uh, they're a little bit out of the ordinary. Now, if they're too much out of the ordinary, uh, if you have something, I mean, a, a red toad that flies and goes through walls and, 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 and it's all... Uh, something that just uh, is totally difficult to grasp. We'll forget it. But if you have just an ordinary frog who talks, you'll remember that. Or an ordinary person who goes through walls, you'll remember that. So if you find just something that's a bit different, it isn't just something we remember, it's something that grabs our attention. 
And again, that perhaps suggests why some religious concepts that seem slightly weird are so easy to grasp, so easy to remember, so easy to communicate. And I suppose fairy tales are a bit of the same, that children find it very easy to, to grasp these things. Similarly, we are, it's claimed, natural dualists. Now, that's quite a big claim because, of course, the, uh, I suppose the common view in present-day philosophy is that dualism is to be ruled out, though I know plenty of philosophers who are dualists. Um, it's uh, almost the starting point uh, in, in many discussions that, well, we can dismiss dualism that starts with a naturalist approach. Yet it is uh, itself uh, go, does go against common sense. Most of us think we're not just our body. Most of us can easily think of ourselves as being disembodied. Um, think of uh, near-death experiences, the, the stories we hear of people somehow floating near the ceiling and looking at the doctors operating. Now, uh, whether there's anything in that or not is another matter, but it's an easy idea to grasp. It isn't something you find at all puzzling, but I, I think we could all think, yes, I could look down on my body lying inert and being operated on. Uh, now, uh, again, it's how easy we find to grasp these things uh, that, that's the issue, how easy these ideas are to communicate, the naturalness of them. And religion builds on this kind of view. Um, life after death, obviously, is linked to the notion of disembodied minds and the idea of a mind that is actually existing apart from ourselves. Uh, a mind that uh, somehow, therefore, can see other people. That's something that, as well, uh, there seems to be quite good empirical evidence that, and obviously, as we saw yesterday, the idea of, of a God who can see people, uh, an all-seeing God, now, it could be quite important and have quite uh, important uh, selection effects. On that line, um, uh, another... Uh, line in the cognitive architecture and it's building up that all makes religious concepts easier to grasp and easier to communicate and easier to hand on uh, is the notion of uh, what is called theory of mind and the development in children of the ability to recognise false belief. Now I'm a philosopher so I don't do experiments but I've got a couple of twin grandchildren, and I did try something. I mean, this has been written up in the literature, so I thought I'd just try it on them. Uh, when they were three, um, I uh, got them to sit and look at two cups and put an apple under one, and their mother saw where it went. Um, mother went out of the room. I moved the apple under the other, and I said to them, now, when Mummy comes back in the room, where will she think the apple is? Now, the literature says... Uh, that they will think that mummy knows everything and mummy will know where it now is, age three. And I tried this with them and yes, it worked. They were absolutely sure that mummy knows everything, uh, that mummy will actually... Uh, they were very emphatic about it. Of course, they still think it's there, pointing at the new cup. And of course, what is interesting is that they haven't reached the development stage where they can, in a sense, recognise that people's perspective their beliefs, in fact, don't necessarily track the way things are. But their starting point was that they did, that, they, that mummy is omniscient. I tried it again a year later, aged four, and uh, their reaction was different. Again, uh, mummy went out of the room, 
But they were each, boy and girl, absolutely sure that Mummy would be mistaken when she came in, that Mummy wouldn't have seen where I put it, so she'd think it was still under the first one. Well, so far so good, I mean, that's part of normal human development, and between three and four, that, that's roughly uh, when the change takes place. Uh, the, the next stage, and this is a, something that's been investigated in the cognitive science of religion, the next stage uh, is just uh, uh, to, to say, but what about God? And now, I, I'm quite happy to say that all this depends on the background of the children and so on, but it's, it's how easy it is for them to understand certain concepts that we're talking about, the ease of going on thinking in particular ways. And I said, well, would God... No. Where would he think the apple was? And they were both sure that God would know that the apple was where it had been moved to. And when I said why, the little girl said, but God sees everything. And the little boy said, rather accusingly to me, but God is God. And uh, I think that that is an interesting thing because it shows how, in natural, how natural it is for children to go on thinking that there could be an all-seeing being. In other words, omniscience is the starting point, not the ending point. I find that um, interesting as a philosopher because I'd rather thought in the past that omniscience is, is rather difficult concepts that we arrive at through philosophical thought and analogy, and, and I wasn't quite sure how meaningful it was. But yeah, here you have little children starting with the idea that mummy sees everything and then understanding she doesn't. But it's easy to keep on with the childish concept that God sees everything. Now, some people will say, yes, precisely, it's childish, they can grow out of it. Um, th that's a different issue. What I'm just saying is how natural this is, how easy it is for people to grasp these concepts. Uh, so, again, it's part of the cognitive architecture of the mind uh, that we all have. Um, again, uh, I, there's various evidence to suggest, and um, I, won't, I haven't got time to quote it in, uh, uh, in depth, but Deborah Kellerman in Boston um, has had various experiments of this to show how we do, as even as adults, but certainly as children, um, see purpose in things. I mean, there's evidence to suggest we're natural creationists. It might suggest I mean, how difficult it is to actually teach evolution to people who find it less easy to think in that way than to just think in terms of creation. But if you ask, uh, for instance, children, why are rocks pointed, they'll always give a purpose um, so that um, animals can't sit on them, or, or something, even if it's what we would regard as a rather silly reason, they think up a reason. And Deborah Kellerman has actually also done experiments with more sophisticated scientists doing things very quickly, and she finds that actually, again, the default option is to, in a sense, on the side of purpose, rather than even on conventional scientific explanation. That, that we find it easier, I mean, again, this doesn't suggest it's right, but, but it, it, it's just, we find it easier to think in those terms than to think in terms of, of more sophisticated science. So, what does this show? That the human mind is far from being a neutral receptacle for whatever impinges on it. We are predisposed to think in terms, uh, very often in a pre-conscious level, in terms which are the building blocks of religion. Now, as I said, I'm not arguing that religion is true. I'm just arguing that it's there. It's built into human nature, or at least the components of many religious attitudes are. And therefore, 
Um, I think we have to take the idea of freedom of religion rather seriously because thwarting such impulses, I would argue, is perhaps an attack on what it is to be human as much as if you try and starve somebody, as much as if you try and deprive them of food. Um, in other words, religious impulses uh, are important. Now, I'm not crying reason or anything like that. I'm, I'm not just saying that this is necessarily where we finish up with. Uh, but we have to recognise that this is part, a natural part, of human conceptual equipment. And therefore, one has to accept that one must take human beings and the way they react in society very seriously. So religion is always going to be important, and freedom of religion is going to be important if you regard the right ability of humans to exercise themselves as they wish uh, to be important too. And of course, needless to say, by freedom of religion, I mean the freedom to deny religion as well as the freedom to assert it. Uh, that, that uh, of course, the freedom to practice religion means nothing if you also have, unless you have the freedom not to practice it. Uh, but, of course, all of that is a great challenge in our present-day world, particularly in some countries, some Muslim countries, which uh, will not allow, say, the freedom of choice to get out of a religion. So, what I'm arguing here is very much that religion, uh, so far from being, in a sense, a something that can be sidelined, something that is not central to human nature, it's something that always has been central and always will be central, no doubt, and therefore society has to take account of it and it cannot just sit on it and pretend it isn't there or it cannot try and restrain it in a, a tolerant but rather supercilious way at, without being willing to some extent to give free rein to it. Uh, this isn't the place for me to talk about the question of the limits of religious practice, um, which uh, I think is, is a, a big issue. I've just written a, um, a think tank report, which you can look at on the Theos uh, website on freedom, free to believe. Um, and one of the great issues is, uh, of course, you can't allow absolute freedom for religious practices, otherwise we'd rely on human sacrifice and goodness knows what. The question is, where do you draw the line? But that freedom of religion is very central to the idea of being human, and indeed the idea of our democracy, uh, is I think something that contemporary science is telling us, and that I would be willing to argue for philosophically. It is not a, a challenge to modern human rights, because the freedom to practice one's religion and belief is itself one of the most basic of human rights. In the United States, they would call it the first freedom, because it's there in the First Amendment to the Constitution. I suppose it is significant in Europe that uh, the phrase is freedom of religion and belief, not just freedom of religion. And that comes back to, I suppose, my caveat about the difficulty of defining religion, uh, that uh, I think one can't draw it, the idea of religion too narrowly. On the other hand, for it to stand up in a court, the difficulty is you can't allow absolutely anything. And there is going to be a very great difficulty of definition. Courts actually hate defining religion. They run a mob 
by, by doing that. But talking about religion and belief doesn't really get them off the hook anyway, because what beliefs? Which ones are so important they should be respected? Um, recently, a British court uh, said environmentalism was rather like religion, so that should be respected. Uh, in other words, they're taking freedom of belief, uh, freedom of conscience, as implying more than just religion. And that may be all, all well and good. Uh, but I just uh, issue the caveat that the problem of defining religion uh, doesn't go away if you widen things to include belief. We still have a particular problem. But having said that, I suppose we all know what we're talking about when we talk about religion in a very kind of way, so we'd better just stick with that. Thank you. So thank you, Roger, for that very uh, interesting paper and remarks. So let me begin by saying that uh, uh, I don't uh, study science and religion. I study primarily the history of theology and political philosophy. So I was grateful that you began by talking about Locke, so that I'll have something about which I know to respond. So um, I think, I, I guess um, I appreciated your distinction between so the, the two possible traditions of toleration, the one originating maybe in the French Enlightenment, and the one originating maybe with the Cambridge Platonists and the British Enlightenment. I would want to press back a little bit on that and suggest that in fact, there might actually be tension, and I think there is tension even within each of those traditions, and particularly within Locke himself. So notice, for example, the way that Locke in the second treatise talks both on the one hand about um, man being his own property. Man has a property in himself, <coughs> Locke says. At the other time, he talks about God's property, um, God's ownership over humans. And for certain questions, we can see that this is a practical problem. So for the question of suicide, for example, um, political philosophers have investigated whether or not there's something contradictory at Locke, in Locke. And I think actually on questions like that, there is some kind of internal tension. So when we notice, say, um, in America, the question about is this a radical sort of breaking from the past or something, in your phrase, something anchored in God, anchored in the past, in the traditions of natural law out of which Locke's philosophy would have emerged, I would tend to see the being a fair bit more tension, actually, and that I think Locke fairly explicitly saw himself as breaking from the past. So that, for example, in the handouts we have, we talk about the latter tradition, the uh, Enlightenment, French Enlightenment tradition, seeing the traditional authoritarianism of the Roman Catholic Church as the enemy of freedom. That is obviously much more explicit in the French Enlightenment. But on the other hand, there are pretty significant traces of that in Locke and the, you know, I guess we call it the British Enlightenment and then its historical descendants uh, in America. So I, I, I'm essentially arguing that I think there's a tension even within each of those traditions of religious freedom, <coughs> traditions of religious toleration. Now, given the two of them, would I prefer Locke's over the French? Yes, I would. I mean, and simply for the present day uh, problems we see today, that the limits on religious attire in public, um, the fact that Orthodox Jewish boys can't go to government schools. So I see that fairly explicitly as a form of uh, religious toleration, or, or sorry, a, 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 an explicit form of religious persecution. So given the choice, I you know, prefer, they'll say, the Lockean over the French uh, secularism. Having said that, it's not clear to me that the, Lock, that the Lockean tradition isn't um, in, in, inherently incoherent in its own way. 
Um, in terms of uh, the sort of American historical account, I think even there we see sort of tensions within the tradition that we're pointing to. And, a, and maybe a, a way to sort of explain that historically would be to point to the differences between toleration that has emerged in Locke's more devoted followers in America, people like Jefferson um, and Madison, who were working in Virginia. And so you mentioned Virginia primarily. In contrast to how toleration and religious freedom came to play itself out, say, in Massachusetts, where John Adams was more influential. Adams, then, is drawing more on what he sees as um, <coughs> Dutch antecedents, so possibly more Puritan and then it's Calvinist. Um, uh, he, Adams has more room for an established religion, granting some limited toleration to other members of the community, whereas what we see in Virginia is much more what we would now call religious freedom. That is, that there can't be an established church precisely for these reasons. Once there's an established church, then um, you've uh, improperly limited the freedom of dissenters in the community. So I think even on that, we see Locke maybe and his dissent pressing in ways that's going to be problematic for um, what Roger is endorsing. I think if we want to look at, say, the, the, the Dutch descendants, Adams accompanied Virginia, we're going to find other problems um, as well. Uh, I guess my final remarks then, and I'll leave the, allow the audience to sort of ask the questions about, primarily about um, science and the empirical studies about which I know significantly less. So my, my final question would be just simply something you alluded to but danced around, and that was the um, question of whether or not our inability to clearly define religion is a problem for this broader conversation in this conference, and then the more specific assertions uh, you were making in your paper. And I would tend to think it is actually much more problematic. Um, it's not, of course, of course, we do all sort of have a sense of what we mean by religion. Most of us know it when we see it. The question is when we're evaluating what does, say, religious freedom mean or freedom of conscience mean in a concrete case, then we actually have to have something fairly specific in mind in terms of the religion under dispute. And this wouldn't just necessarily meaning, say, Judaism versus Christianity, but maybe even something more specific than that say, Protestantism or conservative evangelical Protestantism, Protestantism in America. And in fact, even on that, it's interesting to see how much Locke and um, the other Enlightenment figures were perhaps in tune to this. Perhaps it was also because they were products of their time. But Locke begins his letter concerning toleration by saying, by making what? A theological claim, not, not a claim arising from political philosophy, not necessarily a claim, claim arriving from political theory, but he begins it with a claim saying that toleration is the chief characteristical mark of the true church. And I think that suggests to us that for these uh, conversations to go much further, I think we have to get significantly more concrete about the particular religion and theology that we, that we have in mind, that we're either targeting um, as opponents or that we're endorsing in terms of uh, making room for freedom. Right. Those are my questions. Right, well, thank you very much. I won't add much there. Obviously, there are tensions in, in Locke. I mean, another tension, if I could just mention it, is that obviously in the 18th century in the United States, they used Locke uh, to justify the separation of church and state, and uh, in Virginia to, to argue against the establishment of the Church of England. Uh, Locke himself was very much a, a creature of the Church of England and a proponent of establishment and attended the Church of England. Uh, so, so there was a, a, and had been involved in uh, the, the uh, in, in preferment of, of, of clergy and so on. Uh, so he would have been part of the system. Uh, so, so there is a, a tension there in how his ideas work out and how he himself lived, I suppose. <laughs>